In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary. We don't know the contrast organic. I'm Vince Manuelli, and you are listening to the Progressive Radio Network, where you could find us every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time on PRN.FM. So today, I wanted to talk about, well, there's a lot of stuff happening in the world today, as there is every other day. Oh, there's been an interesting, I had an interesting interaction with a person today who came through our community space as well. And it's sort of tied together a lot of ongoing frustrations and and thoughts about uh, the left and organizing and people who are involved with those sort of uh, projects and so forth. So it's also the one year anniversary of Standing Rock, or at least the wave of thousands of veterans from throughout the country who descended on Standing Rock to help protect the water uh, protesters, I'm sorry, water protectors, people called them activists, and some people didn't like that term. Anyway, none of that really matters. The people who were there trying to stop the pipeline. And it's 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 a frustrating it's a frustrating experience being involved. I probably should have stepped back and had a smoke or a drink before today's program because with today's this interaction with this person this morning and all the rest, I just really reminded of sort of the toxic elements that exist within these communities and the people who uh, engage in that kind of activism. Anyway, to, to, to make this more coherent for folks, last year, a group of four of us decided that we were going to go to Standing Rock and heed the call for thousands of activists to descend on the camp to form a – what we were told at the time, what we understood we were going to do was to form a wall or a barricade between the police and the protesters, if people remember – was bitter cold. The police were shooting water cannons at people, firing tear gas canisters at them, beating them up, sicking dogs on them. And so at some point, a group of people came together. And we'll get to this because this, to be honest with you, lies at the core of why this action was unsuccessful in achieving our stated objective, which was to, number one, protect the water protectors from the police and number two to help them in their efforts to stop the final portion of construction on the pipeline. It is clear that events like Standing Rock provide a great opportunity not only to garner national attention and to bring light to issues and situations and places, geographical places like Standing Rock, like the many uh, 
Native American reservations that exist throughout the United States that receive very little media coverage, receive very little attention really from any group, organization, civic, media, political, or otherwise. And let me back up and also say it was a great honor to be a part of a tradition that goes back many decades. In fact, the most notorious instance of veterans working with Native American protesters is, of course, also we're talking about the American Indian movement, Vietnam veterans and the standoff that took place. Only four decades ago, a little more than that now. So there's a tradition, and it's an understandable tradition, especially for veterans in the United States who've come to the conclusion that their actions, that the institution, the U.S. military, in which they are a member of, has a long history of colonial brutalities and genocide waged against indigenous peoples across the North American continent. So as a veteran, when you come to the conclusion that the wars in which you're fighting are indeed immoral and unjust and destructive and genocidal in nature, you then expand that critique to something much larger than just the specific war in which you find yourself Derek Jensen often talks about this with environmental activists, and it's very true. You know, environmental activists will often start trying to protect just one piece of land and then come to the understanding that all of industrial civilization is part of the problem or is the problem. It's the same when people come to that conclusion about wars. And all of these being tied together, of course, there's no way to come to a conclusion that wars are bad if you can't then trace those wars back to a colonial culture and a colonial colonial systems of power that have been exploitative and extractive for many, many decades and, in fact, centuries, well over a century here. So you start, you're in your backyard living in your small town in the United States, you're a farmer, you're a rancher, you live in a subdivision, you live in an apartment complex. doesn't matter where you live. And let's say you're a rancher or a farmer and you see that this particular development project is going to destroy a portion of your land or could potentially contaminate your groundwater, which would then impact everything. You know, the entire ecosystem surrounding your plot of land. And you step back and you ask yourself, my God, how could this be profitable? How could someone make money from destroying this piece of land? And then you think, well, it's not illegal. This, what this person or what this entity, this corporation or what the state is doing is actually not illegal. This is actually very much legal. So wait a minute, so how could we have a system where you can legally destroy land, turn living things into dead things? 
or dead things into further dead things. <laughs> um, that's the question that you ask. And then that forces you to ask fundamental questions, serious, sophisticated questions. Hopefully it will about the nature of U.S. capitalism, about the nature of global capitalism, about the nature of our economic systems. Why is it that we have economic systems that rely on and benefit from extractive practices? That's a question worth asking. So it was the same in my experience for the many – I was going to try and find – follow this experience in Standing Rock along in a linear path, but that's probably not going to happen. But it was my experience in Standing Rock talking with the hundreds of veterans that we had a chance to interact with over the course of a week that a lot of those veterans came to that same conclusion. Their politics started very small. Either through a subjective anecdotal experience or through an objective intellectual understanding of what the wars or the U.S. military was all about, many of the veterans who we met, much like myself and the people that we went to Standing Rock with, most of whom were veterans, started out with an understanding that the wars were bad. Hey, I fought in Iraq or Afghanistan. The war in Iraq is an illegal, immoral war. Or the war in Afghanistan, I don't agree with this war. And it is immoral and, and, and insane and has helped destroy the country and several years ago became the longest war in U.S. history. A lot of the folks we talked with came to those conclusions early on in their lives. They came to those conclusions while serving overseas or at the very least upon immediately returning home. And I think that turnover rate is perhaps quicker today than it was when I got out of the military in 2006, because I would argue there's any number of venues and mediums through which you can learn a lot about these wars and the history of U.S. militarism and so forth. Plus, there's an entire element on the right libertarians, the alt-right, there's a segment of those people who are nominally anti-war. I think you could argue that these people are actually fundamentally against many wars, but for all the wrong reasons, if that makes any sense. So, for instance, a Ron Paul supporter will say, I'm against the wars because it is sacking the U.S. Treasury and these barbaric Muslims and Arabs. There's no use trying to democratize them anyway, as if that's what the U.S. military is doing, so on and so on and so on. And we can play this game forever. You get the point. The point is, is that someone like, you know, Ron Paul style libertarian will have that response. You know, an Alex Jones style alt-right person would have a similar response. You know, why waste American lives and treasure on these barbaric animals in the Middle East. You know, that's a lot different than saying there are, which is, should be at least the left-wing view and has traditionally been, we have more in common with our poor and working-class Iraqis than we do with rich elites in the United States. And because of that, 
we see ourselves as standing in solidarity with the people of Iraq and Afghanistan, and we support the movements within those societies who are trying to fight for a more humane and democratic society in a nonviolent fashion. And knowing that there are millions of people within those societies who indeed believe in and want those things. That's a much different approach. Nonetheless, both say are against the war, both, you know, the left wing person and also this alt right or libertarian type of person is nominally against the war or against U.S. empire, but for many different reasons. <clears throat> In fact, drastically different, fundamentally different reasons. So this brings me back to – how does this bring me back to Standing Rock? Because many of the people who were at Standing Rock, it was the first time they had been politically engaged. Most of the people we spoke to at Standing Rock were for the first time engaging in that level of political mobilization. And that's a good thing. It's definitely good. You bring people out to an event like that, it energizes them. It allows them a space to connect with other activists and organizers and concerned people and to learn and to grow from those experiences and to learn from each other. Extremely important, I think, for anyone to attend those massive mobilizations, whether they be Standing Rock, whether that be in Ferguson, Missouri, after Mike Brown was killed in 2014, whether that be in the fall of 2011 during the Occupy movement, or whether that be in the dead of winter in 2011 for the Madison, Wisconsin, the protests in Madison, Wisconsin, the occupation of the Capitol building. Massive mobilizations like the Women's March in D.C. or the anti-war marches that took place across the country during the Bush era. Those were very worthwhile experiences. I would argue, however, that those mobilizations would be much more powerful if people who attended those mobilizations were going home to organized communities. Unfortunately, what we've seen is a substituting of, so you substitute mobilization for organization. It's not that we don't need all of the above. It's that all of the above should work in tandem with each other. But we have placed a large amount of emphasis on advocacy. So small groups of highly professionalized individuals working on behalf of a larger constituency. Here, you can think of some of the big green organizations traditionally how they've operated, fighting their battles in courts, fighting their battles with extremely professionalized elite organizers and activists, working in small groups to push a very specific agenda. When I speak of mobilizing, for those who aren't clear, I'm talking about simply turning out the choir would be the best way I could put it. You have groups of people who already agree with one another. So in Madison or Occupy or Standing Rock, that's going to draw a certain type of person or certain types of people. It's going to draw on those who already agree with your platform. So you're not going to get people who are sort of on the fence to show up to Standing Rock and face the risk of bodily harm and or loss of life if they're just on the fence. You're going to get the diehards to show up to these mobilizations. And mobilizations can be very powerful. Massive mobilizations in Egypt helped overthrow a dictator. 
massive mobilizations in the United States, such as Occupy, helped quite literally helped change. I hate saying the narrative in the discourse because this has become like the the buzzword among activists today is to say that we changed the narrative. We definitely changed the framework or the discussion. We changed, we didn't change it. I would say we altered it because the dominant way in which the recession was talked about or the framework through which the recession was talked about, the 2008 recession was through a framework of austerity. This was again picked up by Trump in the 2016 elections. You know, who are you to blame for your loss of jobs? Blame the Chinese, blame Mexicans, blame black people, blame Muslims, blame poor people, blame anyone and everything except for the structures and institutions, banks, corporations, and government apparatuses that actually create those conditions. So I think there's great benefits to these mobilizing efforts. I would like to see more mobilization efforts take place within the context of organizing. So bringing this all back to Standing Rock, when we went to Standing Rock, we were speaking with people. It was very clear that people were very alienated outside of the context of the encampments. So when we would sit down and ask people, hey, what, what kind of organizations are you involved with? What are you doing when you go home? We would more often than not get a sort of blank look on the face of many of the veterans and even, of course, many of the civilian activists who were there. You know, people would look at us and they kind of, what do you mean? What kind of organizations or what do you mean when I go back home? You know, there's more often than not, you'd hear veterans say stuff like, man, I wish we could just stay here forever or man, I would really like to be able to take you guys home with me or I'd really like to come visit where you guys are from. And that's all that makes sense. You know, you're in a very stressful situation. It's very intense. There's a lot on the line. You're making these new bonds and connections with people who you're going to put your life on the line with. It reminded me in that way much of the military where you immediately become tight with folks because there's no other options because you're now surrounded by a platoon of 40 something people who have your your life in their hands and vice versa and if you don't cut through the bullshit and if you don't learn how to talk with each other and build that trust someone's going to end up dead there's great benefits to that uh, as harsh as that sounds probably to a lot of people who will listen to this there's great benefits to that context there's great benefits to being forced into a situation where you're immediately or you immediately have to build a certain level of trust with people and cut through the bullshit. There's a lot to be said for that. So that happened in Standing Rock to some degree. So it's understandable that people would, by the end of it, be like, man, I would really like to meet, you know, meet your friends and come to your hometown and see what you're up to. And, you know, but that, but a lot of that was out of a, a lack of existing organizing. So, you know, like I said, many of the people we spoke with, either this was the first event they had been to, which is okay too. I understand that. Some of the first events that I attended were anti-war protests during the Bush era, and I didn't have much to go back home to, uh, but, but found it quite quickly, found an organization in Iraq Veterans Against the War that had local and regional chapters. And so there were ways for you to go home from massive mobilizations 
and at least still sort of nominally be a part of something. I'll get back to that as well, perhaps in another program, but maybe even today. So that was one of the, the primary things that I saw as an issue when we got to Standing Rock was massive disorganization. I mean, total disorganization, disorganization on a level that even I couldn't imagine. And that's after working many, many, many years in instances and um, that were very similar. Of course, different in some ways, but also very similar in terms of turning people out to a very intense, highly emotional, highly volatile uh, political event, rally, spectacle, or otherwise. There's also a limitation because you because the organizations and people were brought together in this hodgepodge fashion, there was a limitation in terms of what you could expect to get done in such a context. You know, back then, looking back, thinking about the event with some distance, time that has passed, it's clear to me also that we were really probably crazy to think that we were going to stop the pipeline by simply showing up and creating a barrier between us and the water protectors. Now, I didn't assume or go there with the understanding that we were going to stop it through simply employing that tactic, but there seemed to be a lack of sophistication and a lack of understanding and even a, an unwillingness to have the conversations about what kind of vision, what kind of strategies, what kind of, what kind of tactics it would take to stop the pipeline. And I believe at that point, someone please correct me if I'm wrong, but I do believe at that point that close to 98 or 97 percent of the pipeline had been completed. So, OK, the odds were already stacked against us. We went there there. What when by the time we got there and this is something else, this is a, sort of a clear indication of lack of organizing. And proved to be a big problem was when we got to Standing Rock, there wasn't a clear orientation process. There were people who tried to orientate folks. No one really knew what kind of power they had. No one really knew what kind of command they had over what they were actually saying to us. We would get one word, uh, say, right now, and then an hour later, we would get totally different word. And then four hours from that, we'd get a totally different word from people word being the scuttlebutt that's passed down it's military terminology but you know you're getting word from people it's like what is the what what's going on what's the what's the what's the plan here what's the next steps that's word and you know we'd get that from folks would be different then we'd get there we got to one uh building and there were people just kind of standing around wondering what was next and i remember a few indigenous activists standing in the front of the building and making people go through like these, what would you say? God, military protocols, like, you know, standing in line and covering and aligning with each other. And, and quite funny in that way, you know, trying to draw on that military experience, but in my opinion, all the wrong elements of that military experience, the, the elements that many of us would like to forget or that just remind us of the sort of, banal nature of, of being in the military. But that said, you know, I remember people, the indigenous activists sort of telling people, look, like we're happy that you're here and we're happy that you're going to be a part of this, 
but they did a few things actually when we stepped into this area. They they not only told us what I'm saying right now, which is, hey, we're happy you're here, we're happy you're a part of this, but you're not going to have any real decision making abilities. This is going to be indigenous led and so on. And and this gets to problems I've seen with Black Lives Matter and many other organizations that have failed to really grow or build serious uh, support bases, movements with clearly identifiable objectives and things they want to win and and a timeline for winning those things. Um, A lot of this has to do with the sort of toxic nature of identity politics. So all of the stuff that the indigenous any any anybody who would say something different than this. It's like someone who would say, hey, you should just be respectful because indigenous people have been um, in this powerless position in the United States and and respect that and respect the position that you've had within that colonial landscape. All of that goes without saying. Here's what I'm telling people. This is no longer a debate. I mean, for fuck's sake, at this point, um, if you want to base your movement around privilege or someone's identity, expect to keep losing. It's just that simple. You know, if you if if you're an indigenous or a black activist and you think that you're going to get people to come to your organization, the first thing you're going to tell your those people uh, is that their voices aren't going to matter as much as other people's in the rooms. Well, you're already fucked. I mean, it's just that simple. I'm not going and hanging out with any black nationalist organizations because black nationalist organizations are extremely toxic and unhelpful. And instead of growing, of course, they continue to dwindle and they lash out in in ways political um, that are indicative of, of, of a movement and of a people and of organizations that are powerless. And so powerless people usually do react in very toxic ways. And instead of directing that anger and that criticism upward or toward those in power, toward the institutions of power, oftentimes powerless people will cannibalize themselves or cannibalize their allies. This has been an ongoing problem on the left. That was clear in Standing Rock. So you have thousands of white allies show up now should okay now all that being said let's also be real here should white allies be respectful should white allies defer at times perhaps to indigenous activists should white allies respect the cultural space so if someone says hey look you're not allowed to drink here should people respect that sure all of that's fine and all of that again goes without saying but if you're going to have And this is especially true for black and native activists in the U.S. I don't know what the percentage is, but I'm assuming it's less than 1% of the population in the United States is Native American. If you think that that 1% of the population is going to be able to make the kinds of changes, structural changes that are needed in this country in order to protect the planet, to protect people – If you think you can do that with 1% of the population and simply telling other people, and not just other people, but allies, people who are standing there with you, willing to sacrifice and struggle with you, that their voice or their opinions don't matter, again, good luck trying to achieve stuff because you're not going to achieve a goddamn thing. And that's clear. I mean, as I was explaining to a friend earlier, look at the identitarian movements that do exist in the United States. The the biggest identitarian movements that exist don't accomplish much. 
they're not garnering people to their cause. I mean, this was, I think, most clearly seen in the 2016 election. The movement that had actual grassroots energy were was the Bernie Sanders primary. And there's reasons for that. Uh, the reasons primarily being that Bernie's platform allowed for a universalizing political experience, talking about the 99% and the 1%. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, of course, there's limitations to that as well. Um, and this is this is mostly seen through the traditional Marxist organizing where it's class, 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 everything comes second. Well, in some cases, class doesn't come second. In some cases, it does. Uh, allowing for that nuance in one's analysis, I think, is very important if indeed you're interested in growing your movement. And so you have people show up willing to put their lives on the line, wanting to put in the time, taking time away from their family and friends to, to participate in the acts at Standing Rock, to participate in that resistance. And then you have people at Standing Rock with very little experience. Now, most of the indigenous activists that we talked with, most of the indigenous elders and leaders that we spoke with or who we heard speak at events had virtually no understanding of strategy or tactics or when to employ them or when not to employ them or what the next steps were or what the bigger vision was or what we were going to do after we uh, predictably lost this battle. You know, So the, just the initial victory of Obama puts a temporary stay on it. Everybody knows, of course, that when Trump takes office that they're going to allow the pipeline to continue and to go through and to allow the completion of the project. Everybody knew that even as we were celebrating. Now I can understand again, we had thousands of people in an encampment for many, many months in the bitter cold and rain and snow and living in dirt and squalor. And I get it. You know, it's not, it wasn't a pretty experience. It wasn't some kind of a vacation though. Many people also treated it as such. And that gets to another point that I'd like to talk about a little bit, but then I might as well just mention it right here. But a lot of people were running around taking pictures on their phones, you know, laughing and joking. And of course, you have to everything has to you have to have humor in everything. You know, there's even there's humor in war. I mean, pe people would be surprised how much people laugh in a war zone. And I'm not talking here just about U.S. Um, military personnel. I'm talking about Iraqi civilians and civil society and many other people who just have to find humor in this horrific situation, because if you don't, you'll drive yourself nuts. But I would say that there were too many people who treated it like they were going to Coachella or Lollapalooza, where it was like, hey, everybody, we're going to Standing Rock because Standing Rock is this thing to do. And it's sort of my virtue signal to the rest of the world. They're like, hey, I'm, I'm like with everybody and I'm with this cause. But I'm not really here to be serious about what I'm doing. I'm just kind of here to, you know, be a part of the act. I don't particularly find that helpful at all. And then there's, of course, the question of strategy and tactics. What was the strategy? The strategy was, I guess, to bring in a bunch of veterans to do what exactly to provide a barrier to activists so they could do what exactly was never clear. At that stage in that campaign with the kind of power resources and skills that I could see at the encampment, 
the best thing we probably could have done in hindsight would be to send out small teams of people to sabotage portions of the pipeline construction or the construction equipment or send out waves of people one by one in a single file line and as real nonviolent civil disobedience should work and as uh, Gandhi once described it to walk smilingly and willingly into a hail of gunfire. You know, if you're not willing to walk smilingly and willingly into a hail of gunfire, then you're probably not ready to engage in serious civil disobedience. I think that's a great bar to set for people. I think it could have been extremely powerful to watch groups of two or three or four Marines walk in a single file line hundreds by hundreds, thousands by thousands, and watch them get shot down by the police. Let's show people that that's what the U.S. state is all about. You know, let's show people that that's what policing is all about, that extractive economy, the oil industry. Let's show them what they're willing to do to get the things that they want. I think that would have been useful. I think it could have been a turning point in the country. I don't know. Again, though, you know, you have to step back and ask yourself the question, what exactly do you think doing something like that would have achieved? Would it have achieved the stated objective, which was at the time to simply stop the pipeline? I don't know. Perhaps it could have. Perhaps teams of fire teams of four or squads of 13 running around that property, dismantling portions of the pipeline with thousands of veterans in reserve providing logistical support and support in terms of supplies and so forth. Maybe that, that could have been something, you know, that could have really, I think we could have done something interesting if we, but that, I guess what I'm saying is all of this requires pre-existing organizational capacity. I, I think that's really the fundamental. When I think back about Standing Rock, I think back of it in that way. I think back of it and I think I think about a lot of organizations and a lot of people, decent, good hearted people willing to really sacrifice their lives, putting their lives on the line for a cause which should always be respected and praised, especially in a time that's so hyper individualistic and selfish and self-centered and self-consumed sort of culture that we live in. It's, it's really amazing to be surrounded by people who are willing to put their lives on the line for a cause that's greater than themselves. So I just want to make that clear um, because there will be people who listen to this who aren't actively engaged and I don't want to give them the wrong idea and I don't want to let them off the hook. I really give a lot of credit and praise to the people who are willing to do these kinds of things because it does take a certain level of courage and commitment and I respect that. But at the end of the day for me it actually comes – when I first when I was first making critiques of what was happening at Standing Rock and when I broadcast from there last year, which sounds like a chaotic broadcast because it was it was a blizzard. It was negative 20 outside. There were police everywhere. It was cr complete madness, madness on a level that most people probably couldn't really fathom. So complete madness. I'm broadcasting and I'm thinking, you know, the immediate things that I'm seeing a year ago are like lack of leadership, lack of organization, lack of vision which all comes back to lack of organization and lack of leadership, and then a lack of understanding in terms of what exactly are we going to do and what, in, what in fact are people willing to do? Because the sentiment 
I think what was driving me a little crazy emotionally, at least, was that even the first time, and this is something you'll get with veterans, and I think it's useful, could also be destructive, to be clear. But I also think it is very useful to have veterans as a part of your organization because, as we saw in Standing Rock, like these were people who, for the first time in their lives, were becoming engaged with politics, and yet many of them were willing to put their lives on the line. You know, they're sitting there saying to themselves, well, fuck it. I was sent to a war, fought, could have died for oil companies to profit and geopolitical interests. Here's something I actually am willing to put my life on the line for. I think that has to be respected in a very serious way. But that level of commitment was squandered. And that's, that's, uh, that's really the part that that's upsetting that, that level of commitment that those overwhelming numbers of people who showed up, many of whom were completely committed and willing to sacrifice their bodily safety for the cause. Those things were squandered by identity politics, a lack of organization, a lack of vision, and the unwillingness or inability to reach out to allies and ask people who were there, many of whom with a broad range of experience and knowledge, hey, are there people in the room who've ran campaigns like <clears throat> are there people in the room who've been a part of revolutionary movements? Are there people in the room who've been a part of massive mobilizations? Can we draw on your experience? The unwillingness to do that, the unwillingness to sort of reach out to the thousands of people who are there and tap into that collective knowledge really sealed the fate for the people who are running these standing rock encampments. And then by the time they were tore down and rebuilt and there was supposed to be a whole new wave of so-called elders and so forth who were in charge, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was already over with. And speaking of elders, that was also an interesting dichotomy. There was a dichotomous relationship among the younger native activists and the uh, older so-called elders, many of whom actually had really bad politics. So there's also a portion of this kind of, you know, we were told, how do I put this? We were told when we came in to the event, into the space, uh, the encampments, that we had to listen to the elders no matter what. And so this sets up, again, another situation where you can't expect to get much accomplished if you have this group of elders, many of whom actually have very little political experience, telling a bunch of other people, many of whom actually have a lot of political experience, that their voices simply don't matter or that their voices were going to be secondary just because of the sake of someone's identity. So what you have is a bunch of indigenous activists in Standing Rock, particularly elders who actually had no idea what the fuck they were doing, telling a bunch of other people what they could and couldn't do, even though the other people actually had a much better idea about what the fuck to do. Okay. All of this wasn't based on some kind of objective knowledge of the situation. This was based on people's identities, hence the ongoing and abject failure of identity politics. I mean, you just, again, you can't play these games. Uh, and the more guilty whites play into this, uh, the more you can expect to lose, the more you can leave frustrated, the more you can expect to not garner 
a wide range of support from your allies or sister organizations because who in the hell wants to work with people who automatically uh, discount or degrade one's opinion or one's knowledge or experiences simply based on their identity. That's just not a winning formula, I'm sorry to say. Or I'm actually happy to say because it's really toxic to be in those organizing spaces to begin with. So that's a lot of what I'm thinking about, you know, a year later. It's not so much at the time it was lack of leadership, tactics, very specific things. When I'm thinking back on it, looking back on the essays that I wrote about it. But the real issue, thinking back a year later now, having more time to reflect, is that these mobilizing efforts and thinking of Standing Rock in a series of mobilizations are quite powerless. It could be symbolically important, no doubt. But in terms of providing material, real-world changes, often come up quite short because those mobilization efforts are not taking place within the context of broader activism. The broader context of day-to-day activism, organizations, building a base of power, creating allies, winning campaigns so people can see what winning actually looks like, drawing more people into your campaigns as a result of winning, creating opportunities to, to for popular education, whether that be through workshops or reading clubs or documentary film showings. You know, that day-to-day, block-by-block, city-by-city, county-by-county, state-by-state organizing is not – it's just not taking place. So we can mobilize the choir as best we can, you know, and that's what the left has done since I've been involved is to say, well, I don't really have a ton of people from my neighborhood or my city – who work with me on a regular basis and who can garner all of our, you know, who can, who can say gather all of those resources and people and, and that we work with on a daily basis and then put them into a mobilization effort. It's, it's more of people saying, well, there's not really too much going on in my hometown. There's not really too much going on in the neighborhood in which I live. So I'm going to attach myself to this national mobilization effort because it's a lot easier than to start your own group of course you know it's like I'll plug into this pre-existing struggle even though I don't have much to offer the struggle other than my individual skills or individual set of knowledge or individual abilities but at least that allows me to be a part of something and to be quite honest I'd rather people be a part of something than not to be a part of something at all So in that way, I guess it's good, you know, at least plug people in, give them some experience of seeing what it's like to be involved. But I'm also worried because the more we plug people into those experiences, you know, we plug people into these mobilization efforts without a clear understanding of what they should expect and what they shouldn't expect from such movements. You can also turn people off very quickly. You know, I can imagine that there's a lot of people who went home from Standing Rock quite discouraged, even though. There was a temporary victory. It didn't take long. I think by the next morning, most people kind of understood, okay, what's the deal here? So the reality is this is going to be stopped until Trump comes into office. And then as soon as Trump comes into office, it's over with. And, you know, 
it, it takes a certain level of maturity to come to those conclusions. And I've talked about this a lot in the past, but it takes a certain level of maturity to come to those conclusions while you're in the midst of a battle. And I've seen this has been one of the fatal mistakes of a lot of organizing efforts I've seen in the past. And that's not to just step back and say, you know what, we actually failed. Or you know what, what we're doing is not working. Let's take a different path. Very difficult to do that when you've spent years of your life dedicated to making this thing happen and to do it in a certain way. And then to step back and to say, you know what, this thing that I've been working on, that we've been working on for the last two years, or say in this case of Standing Rock for several months, camped out in the bitter cold and rain and enduring all the elements and lack of food and all the rest, to then come to the conclusion months later that, you know what, those efforts failed. We didn't win what we wanted to win. Now, I agree with the old Brazilian jiu-jitsu saying that you never lose if you learn. Now, it's like with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you constantly lose. I think it's great for political organizing. A lot more losses than there are victories. But the losses don't become real losses unless you fail to learn from those losses. And then not just to say that you've learned or, hey, I recognize that I fucked up in the past or that we made some bad decisions, but to come to those conclusions and then to apply those lessons in the real world. So it's not good enough to just say, you know what, we failed and I understand why we failed. What must happen next is implementing those lessons, implementing what has been learned in your next organizing efforts. And I remember getting a lot of shit from fellow activists and organizers and concerned citizens who couldn't believe that we could drive all the way to Standing Rock, spend a week of our lives there, willing to put our lives on the line and all the rest and to come home and not have just nothing but glowing praise for the experience. And again, this is, it shows a lack of maturity on the left that is an ongoing problem. And that is our immaturity and our unwillingness or inability to step back and, and just ask the fundamental and basic question, why do we keep losing? Why are we not winning the things that we need or want to win? Very few organizations and people do I know who do that. I genuinely respect the people who do do that in a respectful way, of course. We're not trying to shit all over people just to say, hey, we're right and you're wrong. What we want, what I hope everyone wants, what I want is for each of the activists, each of the organizers, each of the people who are out there trying to make this a more progressive country, a more progressive world, a more livable world. I want to all of us to constantly ask the question, what can we do better and why do we keep losing? I would, I would argue that a large part of this is that people have been unwilling to commit themselves to the day-to-day -day routine of organizing, of this being a part of – this isn't something you do on the weekends. It's not something that's a subculture, which you know maybe we're guilty of setting it up in that way. I, I hope we're not. Now, I've done my best to try and talk about it in not that fashion. So if you have 
if you have uh, people out there who are trying to do the best they can or the best that, you know, the, you have a lot of people out there who are struggling to do the best they can. I'm sorry. I just got thrown off a little bit because I'm looking out my window and my landlord walked by. <laughs> but uh, we're recording at Park here today as I've been for many of the Mondays or the vast majority of Mondays since we've gotten the space. So there's these two huge windows out front. And so you can see everyone who walks by and sometimes they'll look in and knock on the window and until they walk to the door and see the please do not disturb sign. In any case, the point isn't to shit on people. The point is to try and make everyone more effective. I want every single movement to be more effective than it is today. I want, even if it's an organization, I really, you know, it's like, liberal organizations that are out there or like, you know, I don't know what to say. Organizations that maybe don't have the kind of politics that I really agree with, but still have some really positive things that they're trying to do. I want all of those organizations to be extremely successful. The problem I'm seeing is that we are not asking the proper questions, nor have we shown the willingness to self-critique. That willingness to constantly practice praxis and to put that praxis into motion learning theorizing trying reflecting improving continuing that process for me you know and as i mentioned before i got a little distracted there was you know we don't want this to be a subculture we want this we want organizing political resistance the idea of emancipation the idea of liberatory politics to be a part of the very social fabric, cultural fabric of our everyday lives. Now, I think in order to do that, there has to be real world material practices for people's everyday lives. You can't just come together and say, hey, we're going to stop this oil pipeline. It has to be, hey, we're going to come together and stop this oil pipeline because this is a continuation of ongoing work that we're doing in my community, in our region, or whatever. So when there is a moment like Standing Rock, it's not, hey, let's just throw together a hodgepodge group of veterans and people, whoever can come, but it's, hey, who in South Dakota, North Dakota, Minnesota, Iowa, uh, Illinois, Wisconsin, Nebraska, Montana, who in these areas have existing networks have existing organizations, existing struggles, campaigns, and political projects that we can tie into this, this uh, opportunity to mobilize. It's the only way that these kinds of efforts are going to work. So I can see I have about five minutes left, maybe a little more than that. But that's really what I'm thinking about a year after Standing Rock. It's a lot, it's somewhat different than what I was thinking about a year ago after we returned home. And I don't know, in some ways, at least for me personally and here with what we're doing locally, I feel way more happy and confident today than I did a year ago. Not happy and confident in terms of everything, like, you know, that I think everything's just going to be okay or that everything's going to turn out great. But I'm way more happy and confident in terms of our day-to-day organizing, what we hope to achieve, what we are doing, what we're learning, what we're hopefully imparting on other folks and all the rest. 
I think it really helps to have a base of support and to have a network of people that you're regularly interacting with on a daily basis. There is no other way to make this stuff happen. I don't, you know, I spoke with a few people the last week about commitment. You know, one of whom is trying to organize the Green Party, one of whom is organizing a campaign, environmental campaign, one of whom is organizing an art project, and one of whom is trying to organize a new NGO and trying to start their own nonprofit organization. None of those things can be done successfully without massive amounts of time and effort. You can't name something or someone or a project, and I know I harp on this, but I think it's very important because sometimes I think we cut ourselves too many excuses, cut ourselves too much slack. Doesn't matter what you're trying to do, whether that's successfully create a good baseball team or successfully create a new business or successfully create a new political party, organization, bookstore, coffee shop, whatever. You want to get good grades in grad school? Guess what that takes? Time management and a serious level of commitment, unless you're some kind of a genius. Same is true with political organizing. People expect to get something out of this by not putting much in. And I'm telling you right now, you're not going to get shit out of this unless you put everything into it, just like anything else. And the analogies for working out still remain the truest in my mind. Plenty of people go to the gym and fuck off for an hour a day. And then after several months, ask themselves, why do, well, I don't understand why I'm not seeing any results. I don't understand why I'm going to the gym, but I'm not getting the kind of results that I want. That's the same with organizing. You can show up to events, you can write up articles, you can post pithy Facebook comments, and all of the rest. But if you're not really serious and dedicated to the work, you shouldn't expect to accomplish much. And so for me, a lot of this gets down to very basic fundamentals. Do you understand the fundamentals of organizing? Do you understand the fundamentals of building power to win the things that you want to win? And at the very basic level, are you committed to actually making that happen? Because you can have all of those skills. You can have a lot of that knowledge. You can have a lot of those understandings. But, it, but even then, if you're not willing to put in the time that it takes to do these things effectively, we can't expect to win much. And we haven't been winning much. And in fact, we keep losing. And I know that's harsh to some people again. But I think we should talk in those terms because I think we should be open and honest. You know, I remember when I was sitting on the board of directors for a national nonprofit organization and we were going through a big transition, trying to rebrand, trying to figure out where the organization was going. And I remember people on the board of directors asking me to call our donors and to ask them for money. And they gave me a list of things that kind of was like a souped up version of what we were doing. So it was like, let's say you're having a workshop and, but the way you describe it is, Hey, we have dozens of activists converging on this city to explore the transformational elements of grassroots political organizing and impoverished communities in the neoliberal context. Like that's the way it was framed. 
but in, in reality, what we were doing was getting together like, you know, a dozen people from the organization who, you know, just wanted to learn basic skills about organizing. <laughs> and my point to the board of directors and my point to everyone in the NGO world at that time was why are we not just being honest? I get it. We need money. That's how the NGO world operates, which is an inherent flaw in the NGO model. But it is reality. Okay. So understanding that and understanding that we do actually want to have a staff of people and we do want to have an organization that continues to grow. How can we just be honest with people and tell them, hey, this is where we're at as a movement, as an organization. We only have limited resources, limited capacity and limited time. And I'm going to have to cut it short. We'll talk to folks next week. I plan on getting this week. And anyway.